I'm Vanessa. And I'm Amber. And we're the hosts of True Crime Buzz. We believe there's nothing better than a good glass of wine. Or whiskey. And true crime. So buckle up and get ready, y'all. Because each week, we like to pour a glass. And discuss true stories of crimes committed by people who probably should have been swallowed, let's be honest. That's right. Murders, missing persons, cults, we cover it all. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify, with new episodes every Tuesday. So grab a drink and join us. Cheers! Welcome to Nefarious New York. I'm Allison. And I'm Meredith. So yesterday we covered the beginning of the Jill Cahill case. Okay. And today we're going to finish it up. All right. So we should probably recap a little bit. Sure. (laughs) So here's my recap. Jeff Cahill, Jill's, I would say, estranged husband, even though they were still living together, but they were in the separation process, has now beaten her to a pulp with a baseball bat. She is now in the hospital. And I think we should just get right into this because I'm I'm dying to know what happens, although I know he's going to go into the hospital and kill her. If she is improving, either he's going to kill her when she gets out or he's going to kill her. Now, she was alluding to this as well as she was, you know, now recovering a little bit in the hospital. And I think she was afraid, right, that he was going to finish the job. And Jeff, um, you know, it doesn't seem like he in, in the past was very, very violent. It seems like this was more of a recent type of thing, right? So the last two or three months leading up to their separation and leading up to this attack, he started to become more and more violent with her. Okay, so we are now in October of 1998. And so continue with the case. On October 27, 1998, after the hospital was closed to visitors, Jeff snuck into the hospital Mm -hmm. as he had done before. So Jill had actually been telling the truth when she said that Jeff had been there. Mm -hmm. He was wearing a disguise to make him look like part of the custodial staff. He wore a wig and glasses with a mop and falsified name tag. And members of the staff at the hospital crossed paths with him and really thought, you know, something was off Hmm. with him. Okay, so... One of the clinical technicians is quoted as saying, it looked like he was having a bad hair day. His wardrobe made him stand out instead of blending in. The man was wearing boots and not the standard rubber-soled hospital shoes, while his shirt and pants were close to those worn by hospital staff. They weren't exactly the right color. One of the nurses also said that He noticed that the hospital identification card that he was wearing, I should say that Jeff was wearing, was nothing more than a slip of white paper inside a plastic holder. 
He says, I and other hospital workers questioned one another about who the strange-looking man was, and no one knew. We began a room-by-room search for the unknown man. Which, to me, nowadays, they would probably call a code right, shut the whole over place the loudspeaker down. system yeah. and to shut the whole place down. I mean, this is literally is a movie. This is like a horror movie. Mm-hmm. So one nurse was worried about Jill and wanted to check on her around 9.50 p.m. Because, you know, she's someone that they're going to have to watch right. and protect because of this kook, her husband. Right. So by 10 p.m., everyone was on alert and looking for this guy. The nurse who had checked on her then detected a strong odor in her room and saw that Jill was having trouble breathing. She also observed like a waxy looking substance on Jill's chest and that Jill's hospital gown caused a burning sensation when touched. And this was like around 10 p.m. One of the registered nurses says she arrived in Jill Cahill's room and Jill had lost consciousness within two to three minutes. Mrs. Cahill, she says, had been fine when I checked on her just 10 to 15 minutes earlier. She had scrapes and cuts around her mouth consistent with being force-fed. One of the nurses who tried to save Jill's life felt her hands burning. So Tamara Danner from the Syracuse Police Department, who was a forensic scientist, said that the sheets had such a strong odor that they had to be treated carefully to remove toxic fumes. Oh, this is horrible. The police know exactly who's responsible for this new attack on Jill. And they arrested Jeff the next afternoon at 3.45 p.m. We haven't said that she died, well, by the way. Because she didn't. She didn't? Um, she's still alive. They're treating her. Okay. This is all kind of happening simultaneously. Okay. So they got search warrants for his house and his car. And they recovered information from the hard drive of his computer, revealing all the internet searches for cyanide, how to order potassium cyanide. And also they saw on the computer letters that he had written saying he was from one company called General Superplating, and he was ordering potassium cyanide as an employee of that company. Mm. Also in the shed on his property, they found a half-burned wig. Oh, my God. And they also got witnesses from General Superplating and UPS that identified Jeff as intercepting and trying to intercept a lot of packages that were coming to that company. Hmm. And some of them were of cyanide. So he would go and put on a disguise to look like an employee of General Superplating And he would wait around for the UPS driver to be near the place and just pop in and be like, hey, I'm heading back to work for my lunch break or whatever. Um, Do you have any packages for general superplating? I could just, you know, grab them from you so you don't have to make that stop. And the guy, that UPS driver, actually did it one time. This guy is nuts. I mean, this is so premeditated. Yeah. But the driver did feel a little like he shouldn't have done it. So he ended up taking down his license plate number. Mm. So they have that information. And that's obviously going to it's going to match back not to Jeff, but to his brother's car that he was driving. You know, he would then have to go into general superplating when the delivery was made after the driver stopped letting him pick up stuff off the truck and get the package that way. 
As I anticipated, despite efforts to revive her, Jill's family was told there was no brain activity. They were able to say goodbye, and her children visited and prayed over her. Then they removed her from life support, and she died at 6.45 p.m. She was just 41 years old. Right, so she died three hours after he was arrested. And it's like she, she survived the initial attack. It's not like she survived it and was okay. She survived it and had to fight through meningitis, all these surgeries, all this doing better than regressing. And it's just all that work for nothing. On October 31st was her funeral. And on the day of her funeral, the police were executing a search warrant of Jeff and Jill's property. So they were searching and Jeff's mother and brother showed up. And the police were like, what the heck are these people doing here? And they said they wanted to get some clothes for Jeff, some shirts for him. I think, I mean, he's in prison, right? Don't they give you clothes? Maybe for court. They wanted to get him some nice shirts or something. The police are like, no, you're not. Oh, they're, they're obviously not going in there for clothes. So Right. You can't go in the house and get anything. You're not coming in. So they said, all right, well, we need to get uh, from the shed on the property some piece of equipment. And they were like, what do you need this equipment for? And they're like, well, we're going to sell it to get money for the defense or whatever. And the police, again, are like, no, but thanks for the tip, because now we're going to extend the search warrant to cover the shed. Right, right. Clearly, you want to get in there and let's find out why. So they get the search warrant to cover the shed. And when they search the area of that piece of equipment was in, they find the cyanide. Oh mother and brother were going to try to clean up yeah, his mess. Th- this mother was so religious, right? Yet she is basically fixing her son's horrendous actions. Ugh. Obviously, they do an autopsy on Jill just to confirm what they kind of already know, that potassium cyanide was given to her. They're pretty sure it was through her mouth, but he may have done her mouth and her feeding tube. Mm-hmm. I guess it's pretty horrible death, but they just call it suffocation by cyanide poisoning. On November 19th, 1998, while the assault charges were pending, a grand jury indicted Jeff on two counts of first degree murder and all the related offenses. So one murder count charged Jeff with having murdered Jill to prevent her from testifying against him at his trial for the April assault. The other was intentionally murdering Jill in the course of and in furtherance of a burglary. And they have to portray the hospital as her home. Mm, Like she was living there for six months and him entering it was a burglary. Wow. And that's how they're going to get it to be first degree murder. They also charge him with two counts of murder in the second degree, burglary in the second degree, aggravated criminal contempt and criminal possession of a weapon in the fourth degree. Now, thankfully, his bail is set at $1 million. Mm. For a $2 million bond. Now, this time, his family is not going to bail him out. Good. And on December 31st, 1998, the district attorney filed a notice of intention to seek the death penalty and also moved to consolidate the murder and the assault indictments so that they could try him for the April assault and the murder. Of course. Which also benefits because, like, if they were separate in the murder trial, they probably couldn't provide information about the assault. You can't bring up past crimes. Correct. So that's why they did it. So the trial court granted the motion in January of 99. 
On April 27th, Jill's family filed a $40 million wrongful death suit against Jeff and the hospital security company. I agree with that. Before the criminal trial started, this lawsuit was settled with the security company paying $850,000. The family got about $500,000 after legal fees, which was put into annuities for the kids, which is nice because I was going to say it's not going to bring her back, but they have to be held accountable. So now we're at the trial. In the defense's opening statement, the attorney said, You will find that when his wife came at him with a knife on April 21st, Jeff Cahill snapped, and he struck his wife with that bat. No one is going to argue that. He struck her repeatedly, and he, in fact, may have struck her with it after it was no longer necessary to do so. Exactly. That's what I was saying. When a person snaps, they break, and when some people snap, they break so badly that they can never be put together again. Hmm. Does it really matter? No. It's a cop-out. But I feel like that's an interesting thing to say because if he's up for parole, right? this guy's basically saying he's broken so badly that he can never... He can never be together. Yeah. Never be a right. safe person again. No, because they're probably doing what they can do to get what they need for the time being. But then that would come to bite you in the ass afterwards. And it, it it's almost like it's making an excuse for what he did. Uh, yeah. Which, no, it's not almost. It is making an excuse for what he did. Then there is no it excuse. Is. That's, I mean, that's his job. Sorry, go on. Okay, so the blood spatter expert that testified said that Jill had been hit at least once in the mudroom, and then she tried to run out into the backyard. Jeff caught up with her on the patio and hit her again out there. He then dragged her back into the mudroom, and while she was slumped against the door frame, he hit her again, and she either crawled or, he's saying probably likely, that she was just pulled back into the kitchen. And then as she just lay there, he hit her about four more times, and he hit her so hard that the blood shot up onto the ceiling. Yeah, which to me is ex- exactly not that they're saying self-defense anymore, because th- you can't. But you don't drag somebody back into the house if it's (laughs) self-defense. You know what I mean? Like, ridiculous. Right. So the county lab director testified that a vial the police found contained 0.57 grams of cyanide. And the mixture is one that people like to use to poison people because it's absorbed so quickly. So if if they had not gotten in there when they did, it would have been undetectable oh my god wow so she had 13 milligrams of cyanide in her body which means there had to be a hell of a lot a hell of a lot more by the time they did that right and the that amount is not fatal but like we're saying finding that amount means exactly she has been given a super large dose the autopsy also showed sadly just how hard Jill fought for her life. She had at least 10 scratches and scrapes on her chin and lips caused by Jeff forcing her mouth open to give her the cyanide. This is, oh my God. Basically, cyanide shuts down all the muscles in your body and it usually takes two to five minutes to die from this and the whole time you're conscious. So basically your heart, everything's going to stop working like your diaphragm. So that's why you're going to, Suffocate, basically. Oh, my God. 
Mm-hmm. And just nothing she can. Oh, my God. <sighs> After less than five hours of deliberations, the jury found Jeff guilty of both counts of first degree murder, first degree assault for the April 1998 beating and related charges. Since the death penalty was on the table, Jeff's attorney for the sentencing now is submitting 25 mitigating factors as to why Jeff's life should be spared. And they were ridiculous. His friendships with people, that he was, you know, obviously very smart, went to an Ivy League school so he could tutor and teach prisoners. Um, He was a devoted son, a good father who happened to murder their mother, (laughs) but, you know. He had no prior history of violence, as you kind of said. Right. And he also tried to argue that it was a mercy killing. Oh, he said my that God. They had had some conversation at some point where Jill said if she was ever like disfigured badly and couldn't live life the way she wanted to, that she would want to be killed. Oh, bullshit. So he's basically now trying to make himself sound really good. Oh, my God. So the prosecution says at the sentencing, I'm here on behalf of the state of New York to ask you to impose a sentence of death, death by lethal injection upon this defendant for a reason and for one reason only, because the aggravating factors of this dastardly murder so far outweigh the mitigating factors that death is both the appropriate punishment and it is the just punishment. So the jury returned with verdicts of death under both first degree murder counts. Jeff was sentenced to death by lethal injection, which was on the books in 1995. New York State really doesn't do death sentences. There is basically a moratorium in them. So Jeff was able to get his death sentence changed to life in prison without parole. In 2003, the Court of Appeals, the highest court in New York, ruled that Jeff couldn't be convicted of first-degree murder because that requires that the murder happened while he intended to also commit a second crime. What? That was the burglary. So that issue is coming up now. Okay. So he couldn't be convicted of first-degree murder because that requires that the murder happened while he intended to also commit a second crime. He did. Well, not if that wasn't her home. But he went in and killed her. That's it. That's one crime. That's second degree murder. So prosecutors contended that the second crime was burglary. Okay. So that's what he did not. So Jeff had broken into the hospital where Jill had lived for six months. But the high court ruled that he only broke into the hospital to commit murder, not burglary. All right. That kind of makes sense. So the result of this, Jeff's death sentence was reduced to 25 years to life with, with the possibility of parole. And he still had the 12 and a half for the assault. The sentencing judge said, Mr. Cahill, when I look at you, I see a coward. You are an evil man, one who has committed a series of evil and unimaginable acts. I think it is ironic that you took Jill's life and now got away with yours. You deserve no mercy and you deserve never to be paroled. Mm -hmm. In December of 2007, Jeff filed an appeal seeking to serve his sentences concurrently instead of consecutively. So like, it's not enough that he's now not going to be put to death. He gets life without parole. Then that's not enough. Now he's got 25 years to life with parole And that's still not enough because that would end up being 37 and a half years 
because he's got the assault and the murder. Yeah. So that's too much for him. Oh, my God. Now, so instead of doing the 37 and a half years, it would just be after 25 years because they would be being served at the same time. Thankfully, this appeal was denied. So he can seek parole in 2036 at the age of 76. Uh, maybe he'll be dead before then. So Debbie Yeager, who's Jill's sister, she ended up raising Jeff and Jill's two children in her Tonawanda home. She was instrumental in pushing for the passage of Jilly's Law. So that law would make it more difficult for an alleged domestic violence abuser to post bail. So as, right, they would look at more than just whether or not you're going to return to court. They would look at what you've actually done. Right. That law didn't pass, but provisions of it were incorporated into the Comprehensive Domestic Violence Law in 2012. And she also volunteers with the Family Justice Center of Erie County. So she's trying to do a lot. Now, this is interesting. There is currently a bill in New York State called the Elder Parole Bill, which says that if a prisoner has served at least 15 years of their sentence and is over 55 years old, they can go before the parole board. So you don't have to serve your full 25 years. That's ridiculous. They don't want to have to pay for all the services. As you get older, you need more medical services. So they're trying to get aging prisoners out. I mean, you have to go before the parole board. It's not like they're just going to release you. But if this bill passes, Jeff would have been eligible for parole in 2015 instead of 2036. Okay. Is that crazy? It hasn't passed as of yet. All right. Thank God. (laughs) You know what I don't get, too? How the family wasn't charged with anything. Well, I guess because they ended up calling 911. But they could have done things in that time frame. They could have hid evidence. They could have. And had they stayed married, this violence probably would have continued. You know what I'm saying? Right. Like, you, I don't think that you just stop abusing somebody like that. You just, you don't. So as you can see, I mean, look, he went back to to kill her. I did do some research for the National Domestic Violence Hotline. So there is also a website. And I went to national because it depends who's listening to this and where you're listening from. But this is the national number. So for anyone affected by abuse and needing support, they can call 1-800-799. 7233. If they are unable to speak safely, if you're unable to speak safely, you can log on to the hotline.org or you can text love is, so L O V E I S, to 1 866 331 9474. And obviously, you know, the primary goal of this is to support survivors 24-7. If you are in an emergency situation, they do urge that you call 911. But it's very interesting because they have a whole section on how COVID-19 is affecting domestic violence sufferers. Which right. is very, very interesting. So there's a whole... Well, yeah, you're stuck quarantined with your abuser. Right. Very, very sad. I mean, my my final thought is obviously that, you know, you, you want to hopefully get the help that you need. It's, it's very hard to reach out for help. 
And it's very hard to know if you're in a situation like that, you know, what to do. So let me just give the number again. It's 1-800-799-7233, but it's also the word safe. Okay. So it's 1-800-799-SAFE. I am shocked at his family. I'm shocked that there's no word of them even trying to make what he did, you know, trying to make up for what he did in a positive way, like for your for your grandchildren. Don't you want to see justice? Um, and that's really that's like boggles my mind. That, that he doesn't seem to be holding himself accountable and his family didn't seem to be holding him accountable. No, no, no. They thought it was all Jill provoking it. And and how do you provoke something like that? You don't. There's no such thing as provoking a vicious attack like that. And that's my final thought. So that is the end of part two of our case. I don't know, this one affected me a lot. Even though I kind of saw things coming, it, it's still unbelievable. I mean, it literally reads like a horrible movie that you see on television, that, you know, these things can actually happen is is unfathomable to me. We will be back in two weeks. And um, I'm going to sing us out. Nefarious New York. <laughs>